Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is a Players Point production. It's sponsored by Prince Associates, the company you can trust for all your insurance needs, and the law firm of Decolator Cohen in DePrisco, specialist in line of duty accidents. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. For those in our audience that are just tuning in, he was the radio and TV voice of the Washington Senators from 1947 to 1960, continuing with the team when they relocated and became the Minnesota Twins in 1961. In 1962, he joined NBC TV, and began, he also began his professional career in 1939 in CBS in Durham, North Carolina, while attending Duke University. He's currently seen and heard on News 12 Long Island, on Madison Square Garden Network programming, and doing sports interviews on the Steiner Sports Memories of the Game show on the Yes Network. He is the longest-running broadcaster in television and radio history. He and Kurt Gowdy are the only two broadcasters to be honored by both Baseball and Basketball Hall of Fames. He's also been honored. I mean, we could go on and on. Induction into the Madison Square Garden's Walk of Fame, the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Hall of Fame. He called Darn Lawson's perfect game across the country on the mutual broadcast system and around the world on Armed Forces Radio. Another of his classic broadcasts was the Giants-Colts 1958 NFL Championship game, one of which is called the greatest game in NFL history. He's also the only announcer to broadcast all four of the major sporting championships. If there ever was a national treasure in broadcasting, it's Long Island's very own Bob Wolf, and we are honored, and it is an absolute privilege to get the opportunity to speak to you. We've had your grandson on the show when right. he, he wrote the Harvard Boys, right. so now it's our pleasure to welcome Mr. Bob Wolf to Sports Talk NY. Welcome, Bob. Oh, thank you for those beautiful words. I'm very flattered. You have this tremendous book out right now, but before we get into the book, let's talk about your amazing career, and the logical place to start with is back in 1938, when you literally get your big break. Uh, it happened at Duke University, where you were a highly touted baseball player, like your son and your grandson. Um, you um, slid into second base during a practice game and broke your ankle. While recuperating, the story goes that you decided to stay close to the world of Duke athletics by offering to do broadcasts for CBS. Not only did they end up hiring you for baseball, but for put football and basketball as well. At, that, at what point early on did you realize that you had a gift for broadcasting and do you remember the very first event you covered? Well, I think the way I had the gift is that I was very fortunate to, to get the chance just to speak. I didn't know that I could speak particularly well, but I found out the more that I broadcast that you really didn't have to have a great voice or a great knowledge or great anything else. You just had to appeal to, to the listeners or the viewers. And the reason I got the break was my leg was in a cast at Duke, and the local CBS station said, look, while you're sitting around, why don't you come on the air and just help our broadcast crew? So I did, and, and they seemed to like my work. So when the regular broadcaster decided to leave for another job, he said, you want to be the play-by-play -play guy too? And I said, sure. So they said, well, come aboard, you're in. And I spoke to the coach, Jack Coombs, who was the uh, baseball coach at Duke, and I said, coach, I want to big, get to the big leagues, but now... I have an opportunity maybe to get up there as a broadcaster. What should I do? He said, well, Bob, let me tell you, I think that your voice can last a lot longer than your legs could, but <laughs> my, my, my advice was if you think you've got a good chance making the majors as a broadcaster, take the job at CBS and see where you go. So I did that and turned out to be a, a, a great opportunity. 
Now, you say get to the major leagues. In fact, you do. In Washington, you become the toast of the town where you not only did play-by-play for the Senators, you also did both the pre- and post-game TV and radio shows, broadcast a nightly TV and radio sports show, syndicated your own TV baseball interview shows to other big league cities, wrote a syndicated baseball column, headed the knothole gang. Between 1947 and 1960, you were basically baseball in Washington. You look back at those Senators' teams, and they were pretty bad teams. Uh, aside from you know famous games we mentioned in the open, I would imagine that there had to be about 2,000 not-so-amazing Senator games in that span, but yet you transcended that. You made those games enjoyable and, and had a lasting impression on Senator fans. What was it about your style, do you think, that, that left such an impression in that you know, area of the nation with a, a fairly terrible baseball team? Well, basically, when I got to Washington, of course I had a chance to take a look at the team, and I found out that they really didn't have much money in that operation. The owner of the team, Clark Griffith, was a former baseball player. And baseball players in those early days, maybe five or 6,000 a year, they worked the rest of the year doing various odd jobs to just to stay alive and feed their families. But I, I found out one important thing when I did the Senators, and that was that I had to hold the audience on the radio or the TV because that's what it was all about, appealing to the listener or the viewer. So I had a big break. I got to Washington through a lucky break as it is because I wrote a book overseas in the war explaining how they could change some of the rules in the supply department. They commended me from the Navy Department. That's how I got back to Washington to rewrite the Navy regulations. And then when I was almost out of the service with the war ending, I went around to a couple of TV and radio stations, and the TV station made me the first TV man in Washington, one of the first in the country. So there I was, 1947. I had hit the major leagues now. I was doing the Washington Senators as the TV announcer. We had about two or 300 sets in the whole town, so it was tough to get started. But it proved one thing right off the bat, and that is that most of the teams lose and don't win. So it was my job, particularly with the Senators, who were always down in the cellar, to keep the games as entertaining as possible. And I found out that if I prepared hard enough, had a, notes and information and identification and, and, and stories and banter and so forth, if I could keep the audience listening to me, I could do my job. And I got fairly popular, fortunately, so I ended up doing the pregame TV show and the postgame TV show. I recorded the pre- and postgame radio shows. I did a, a nightly late-night TV radio show. My scorebook was on sale in the ballpark, and, and pretty soon I began to own all those shows, and I sort of employed myself. So how large a staff, I said it's kind of the, probably the answer to this, you talk about, you look at all the, even the, the local TV networks like, you know, SMY or Yes, uh, ESPN especially, any announcers have huge staffs, they have research departments, they have people who, you know, work in the office. Were you doing this all by yourself, did you actually have a staff way back then? I, I, I found out that there are many people who are a lot brighter than I am, and I surrounded myself with them. And they didn't have to be uh, old, experienced guys. There were no experienced people in TV. So I used bright high school kids and eager college kids and 
almost anybody who said, you want to join me? You'll learn a new business and we'll have fun together. So I surrounded myself with, with people who could help with statistics, pass on stories, help me with all the things I had to learn about the TV business. I was starting from scratch, and I've kept that up my entire life. I've always surrounded myself with, with people that I use in the booth to assist me with notes or information or research and so forth, and it's proved a good investment. In the early days when I started out, I paid for them myself. I thought it was a good gamble. Now, when I went up to the networks, I found the networks take care of all those payments. <laughs> they take care of it now, but in the beginning, it was just out of my pocket, and there wasn't much in there. It's interesting to note that while you were everything there was about baseball in Washington, you actually led a, a, almost a secret life because you also were here in New York doing the Knicks and Rangers, and, and the people in Washington really had no idea. It's like when we have Peter Golenbach on, he talks about how he writes all these baseball books, and then the, the, he also writes NASCAR, his NASCAR books, and neither one of these audiences yeah. know about each other. But you know, when you, fig you think about what you were doing back at that time, um, how did you deal with your time management issues and all the prep work that those three sports now entail doing? I must have had tremendous energy in the beginning because <laughs> in addition to doing all my shows in Washington, particularly during the, the baseball season, on the weekends I was also doing football. I did college football, game of the week for mutual across the country. I did pro football on CBS on Sundays. And I worked two or three nights a week up at uh, Madison Square Garden, where I've worked for now well over 50 years doing their shows. So I was always on the run. In fact, for many years, I did 250 play-by-plays a year, plus a lot of the pre- and the post-game shows. But I had great energy then and great fun doing it. And somehow, just by pure luck, I never missed the show. And that was because very hazardous, because... With the, the planes not always going on time and right. the schedules that I had, there many times when I just barely got in the microphone to, to say hello when, when the show was getting underway. That, that was sort of treacherous. Did you ever show up with the notes for the wrong sport? <laughs> you look down to start doing a game, you're doing basketball. Oh, whoops, these are my football notes. <laughs> well, having notes, I had a big box for every sport that I did. And I kept the same notes from year to year. So when I started a, a new sport one year, I just delved into my notes. But I, I, I became pretty well known because I was versatile. If anybody said, can you do this sport? And I said, can I do that sport? <laughs> of course I can do that sport. And then I rushed out and learned how to do it. Uh, so I took on a variety of stuff. I did, uh, as you mentioned, all... I made a say, but I also did stuff like the Westminster Kennel Club dog show, or carnival, and the Tampa Bay Rowdy soccer team. And if they were to be on the air, I went out and did it. And and somehow I found out that if you prepare hard enough, you can do all those things. But we also talked in the open that you are one of the games you're most best known for is your radio call of the last four and a half innings of Don Lawson's perfect game in 1956. When you entered the booth, did you have, you know, obviously with the no-hitter going on, you have some inkling, but did you have a sense that something great might happen? And how mentally tough is it as an announcer to keep, you know, the perspective? I've listened to the tape many times, and you don't mention the perfect game at all until it's perfect. Which was the superstition. Which is a superstition. Now, 
some announcers still stand by that superstition, and many of today's current announcers have moved away from that. Um, if you were calling that game today, do you think you'd still would not mention it? And, and describe that whole feeling in the booth as that game wore on. Well, for one thing, it was a very unusual game because for the first few innings, not only was Larson putting the side down in order, but Sal Magley of the Dodgers was doing the same thing. That, so that was sort of like a double no-hitter going. But eventually, uh, Mickey Mail got a home run off Sal Magley, and the Yankees scored another run, and uh, it was strictly on Larson. But at the halfway point in the ball game, I spoke to the agency, the advertising agency, the Maxon was the agency. The guy, Gillette, was the sole sponsor of all the World Series. And I said, look, we're at the halfway point. Larson has not given up a hit. And I'm going to, I want everybody, not only across the country, but around the world, we were on Armed Forces Radio, to know what was happening. But I don't want to use the words no hitter or perfect game because there are thousands, if not millions, of people who are superstitious. I don't want to antagonize them. My job is to enhance the broadcast, not antagonize. So uh, Joel Nixon, who was my producer, said, just as long as everybody knows. So I went, example, 18 up and 18 down by Larson, the only hit so far by the Yankees, the only men on base are New Yorkers, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew that nobody was not informed about what was happening. And I didn't get one letter coast to coast or worldwide saying that I interfered with their pleasure. Now, storytelling is what you probably do best, as well as it's what maybe sets Vince Scully apart from everybody else. In today's Elias Bureau, rotisserie, you know, league, you know, rabid fans, where we know situationally what this left-hander does with two strikes in the eighth inning or what this batter does, do you think that need for us with, with these all-encompassing stats has taken away from some of the charm where years ago when AJ and I were growing up, the, the Kiners, the Murphys, would tell stories uh, of the old days of certain players and even during those times, when there was a rain delay, they stayed on the air. They didn't cut to some, you know, canned studio. Well, sometimes uh, they would cut to, they, three they Stooges. to Three Stooges. Right. They but, would rain out theater. <laughs> rain out theater. Right. But do you think that our obsession with stats has taken some of the joy away from the broadcasts? Well, the word stats can be good or bad. Some of them are newsworthy. They can be used. But just to fill up the air with a bunch of numbers is completely insignificant and not very dramatic either. I don't believe there's stories and stats unless they mean something. You know, in the early days when I first started out, that was strictly on the radio. The broadcasters then, Mel Allen, Vin Scully, all of, all of Red Barber, all these fellows were describers of the action. And that's very important because they were... They were hired because of the sound of their voice, and they all had excellent voices, but they didn't do any strategy, no analysis. They didn't give great information, very few statistics, which was ball one, strike one, fly ball to left, two outs, and so forth. And after a while, the public really demanded a little more. So in came the analysts, who were not exactly wordsmiths. Some didn't have particularly good voices. But they did have content, and content became very important, more important than voices are by any means. 
These guys came in, they knew a little bit about what was happening in the dugout or in the clubhouse and so forth, and they used that, and now we've gone to a third phase, and that is some people use three broadcasters, and the third broadcaster is in there because he has something very different to say, a different style of voice, a, a different opinion, whatever it is. It's become more of an entertainment mix. So basically, I always felt in the beginning that a broadcast particularly if you don't have a very good team to broadcast for it, should be entertaining and appealing as well as informative. And I've used that from the very start. I do believe, though, that the fact that I was a baseball player and I pitched batting practice for the Washington Senators for many years kept me very close to the playing scene, so I enjoyed more than anything else talking about inside baseball or whatever the sport happened to be. But... Uh, Today it's different. It's more entertaining, geared toward that. And why is it so? Not because it's better or there's more quality. It's that way because they feel that will give them bigger audiences, more sponsors, and bigger ratings. It's interesting you say that because I think it was Friday. I was listening to FAN, and Mike Francesa was talking, someone was talking about different broadcasting teams. And he basically said, he said, look, you can put whoever it is on the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl is still going to get ratings because it's the game that's important. Now, I, and and the way Francesa is, you know, Francesa says it, it, it it's the, right. the, the gospel. Right. But in the same respect, if the Mets, I'm a Met fan, if the Mets these last two years, you know, when they're out of the pennant race, yeah, true, I'm a fan, but because I enjoy that broadcasting trio, I will Listen. tune into a game in September when the game means nothing, when the Mets are totally out of it, because Darling and Hernandez, you know, and, and Cone are going to say something, something or, or that's interesting. Or the two interesting. Of you guys are so good also. Uh, right, Howie Rose and, and Wayne, Wayne Hagen. Hagen. Uh, so is it, you know, he says it's not important. I, I get the feeling that you, you agree with me that it's a, of the utmost importance. Well, you bring up a very interesting point, so let me uh, give you my views on this. When I was doing the bowl games like the Sugar Bowl and the Rose Bowl and the Gator Bowl, my name was prominent in every TV and radio section that Bob Wolf was the announcer, and I was very proud of that. Because in those days, the radio broadcasters in the beginning were really celebrities. When I did like the, the Sugar Bowl, I'd come to town, they'd, they'd have a big dinner, and I'd be there to speak and so forth. And nowadays... What, what are there, 34 bowl games or something like that? Yeah. I defy anybody to mention four or five announcers that they know which bowl they're doing, if they know any at all, because the announcers aren't even put in the papers anymore. For example, we've just gone through the NCAA tournament, and there are announcers all over the place doing games. Most of them were great announcers, but none stood out. You couldn't say, this is the one guy that carried it, because there wasn't one guy doing all the games. So... Basically, Mike Francesa is correct when he's saying that the game is what people want to to say now, not the announcer. The announcer can spoil it, but the job that you and I have, we're in the same business, we're enhancers. Our job is to enhance the broadcast. If there weren't talk shows, if there weren't pre and post game, if there weren't guys doing what we do in the play-by-play as well, you just be watching bodies go back and forth, shots going in, hits being made, but it will be very, very dull. We provide all the spark, the energy, and above all, 
the emotion. And emotion right now in broadcasting is far more important than words. doesn't matter who the announcer is. You've got to get emotional to be a sportscaster. And that's what these guys do. But the words are nothing. The words mean nothing. For example, in New York, Michael Kay, my friend, says after a home run, see ya. In the old days, the radio broadcasters would say, there's a long fly ball going out to left. The left fielder's going back near the wall. Jumps can't get it. Home run. They don't do that anymore. You know, John Sterling does as high as far as gone. Even Mel Allen back in the old days just said going, going, gone. So words are no longer as important as they used to be. It's not a journalistic business anymore. It's funny because I'm almost 51. AJ's a little bit older. and Considerably older. A little bit. I'm being nice. But, um, you know, it's funny because I, I guess when you hit that certain age, the the dreaded, you know, vocabulary from your father starts, you know, seeping in. Like, back in my day, it was right. better. And in some respects, I honestly think that broadcasting in the 60s and 70s was better. The vocabulary, the respect, and the importance of the game, I think, were priorities. I think somewhere along the line, we've now drifted from that, and there are the preconceived, and you mentioned Sterling, you know, uh, maybe it's because I'm not. Uh, maybe I'm a Met fan, and, and because the Yankees are so dominant. But his preconceived home run calls uh, of the a, an A bomb from A Rod or you know the, the yeah. Randy man to me it, it cheapens the game. I don't know your opinion, Bob. On that. Well, John Sterling, oddly or perhaps correctly, has built up his name because he's different. And being different doesn't mean you're right. Doesn't mean it's quality. Doesn't mean that people all like it. But they sure do remember it. And John knows that instead of just being a straight announcer, that all of a sudden he's become sort of like a, a cult topic. Oh, have you heard John Starling yell last night? And et cetera, et cetera. So to him, that's success. And I guess to a lot of other people it is too. So, uh, People make fun of him a lot for how he sounds, but the thing is, if you ask some of the young kids who they listen to, they listen to John Sterling. So they think that's the exciting way to do it. For example, Gus, uh, Gus Johnson did that a lot on the NCAA. He had his admirers and his critics for, for overhyping the game. Most young kids coming along, by the way, learn the art of broadcasting, try to yell and scream and shout like they're in hysterics, and to me, their voices become raspy and harsh and whatnot. I go more for the guys who only get excited when there's something to be excited about. But that's because the style that I like. doesn't mean it's the right way, but everybody has his or her favorites. So when you say you like somebody, they may be the best. But there's no way in this business to prove who is the best. Being best in this business means you're hired. Somebody thinks you're good. I'll tell you one thing I've noticed over the years. I think there's a difference. Maybe it's because of all the national games now, games of national exposure. And, and I always viewed you, and I've been listening to you do games since 1960, long time. And you always had, because you had this calmness, you always seemed to look much more down the middle, not the, the homer, even the broadcasting, a lot of hometown games, Nick games, as opposed to the, the announcers for the teams that maybe because they were employed by the teams or just the way they were every night and night, you know, a homers, any call that went against them, you know, was, was a bad no. call by the officials. Phil Rizzuto. Phil <laughs> I think you see a lot less of that now. I think maybe because of the national, much more, you know, down the middle type of things, which is different from getting excited. 
Do you see more of that down the middle, or do you think I'm just not uh, listening to the right broadcasters? Well, in the, the early days of broadcasting, be it radio or TV, some of these announcers thought that the way to get a claim and to keep their job was to talk about our team, we won the game, we were robbed, all that sort of stuff. But if you get to the networks, they want you to be completely impartial because they're going to the East Coast and the West Coast and up and down, North and South. So I soon learned that if I were going to be a broadcaster on the networks, which I finally got to be, that I better keep away from our team, et cetera, et cetera, and go right down the middle because that's what Gillette was hiring, the Gillette Safety Reason Company, and they broadcast the games. But there are still some people who, who get hysterical about their own team, and a lot of it's done because they think it, it goes well with what management wants. And sometimes management hires people who does that. But the whole system has changed. For example, the PA announcers some years ago just gave the, who's up at the plate or who made the tackle or whatever it is. Nowadays, these guys lead the cheering. They're part of the marketing. It's Jones now. And, you know, they, they go up and down and so forth. As if they're really part of the show. And the, the scoreboards now say yell or applaud or, or cheer and whatnot. They, they do part of the hype. Now, the oddity is I don't particularly like that stuff because I learned long ago in a ball game. I know when to cheer or applaud. I don't have to be guided. But lo and behold, nowadays, the attendance is higher than ever before. So managers are complaining. They think they're in, in the, doing the right thing. Uh, two weeks ago, AJ and I had Ed Randall on, and we asked him the following question. If he was to do the same thing in a different arena, such as entertainment, politics, you know, what would it be, and who would be the first person he'd want to interview? And I thought, since you've had this tremendously long career, we would ask you the same and to, to get your answer to that question. Well, it's a darn good question, but unfortunately I don't have an answer because I think that, that I've spent more time doing interviews almost than I did play-by-play. -play. I had a, a, a tape that was sent on a disc called Legend to Legend in which I put on about 50 interviews with Hall of Famers and the rest, and doing all these pre- and post-game shows, one thing that I always had to do was to be like a, a friend of the ball player, and this was something I did sincerely, because they, these are guys that I knew, I played ball with in, in many cases, and they trusted me that I wasn't going to embarrass them or say anything. I told the truth, but I didn't, I didn't zing them by saying, uh, how come you did this or did that and so forth? Uh, so I never picked out anyone. I never t went to a ball player for an interview that he turned me down, and most of them were very valuable with me, spoke at great length. And I think one of the reasons was that uh, they knew I was going to be fair. Ted Williams said to me one time, Bob, the only reason I go on with you is because I have so much respect for what you do and how you treat me. So I think I've always tried to, I've enjoyed the, the ball players and particularly doing the interviewing. Well, to put that further in context, when, when you realize that you've interviewed both Babe Ruth and Derek Jeter, you know, when you put that in context, I mean, just for me, that just totally blows me away. But when you sit back and reflect that you did that, what goes through your head? 
but I've lived long enough to do it, and I've been very, very fortunate. You know, no matter what you do, this is a tough business to be in, as, as you've learned, as I've learned, and getting the chance to do it, being hired, for example, in the book, I don't put, say anybody is the best or not the best. There is no best or, or worst, because everybody likes somebody or they wouldn't be hired. But just getting hired in this business is a major feat. And then keeping the job is, is just as important. And doing it in a little different way gives one a chance to go up even higher in the business because being different is what brings in bigger audiences. So basically, I think the ability to get along with people is what we do. We're, we're electronic friends. I'm speaking about the talk show guys or myself. We're just the intermediary between the action and the listener. And, and what we do is to try to entertain them. Would you go in, in depth in your new book, Bob Wolf's Complete Guide to Sportscasting, How to Make It in Sportscasting with or with that, Without Talent, uh, and you go through a number of different things and, and the way you marketed yourself early on, which is, is unbelievable. And I don't really want to give that away because it, it really is, is great reading. And it also talks about when you were doing hiring at News 12, what you look for. And, you know, when I was reading that, the different things you look for and, and such, one, to me, one of the greatest sports moments for me, from a, you know, watching it from a broad, you know, looking at what a broadcaster did with a specific moment in sports history, um, and I've spoken about this numerous times on the air, uh, particularly with Kurt Smith, who did the Vince Scully biography, and I want to put a little different spin on it. So we have Bob Wolf at News 12 looking to hire a play-by-play -play guy. He's got a cassette of the famous Bill Buckner, you know, through the legs, Mookie Wilson ground ball. He's got a Vince Scully who's never had a job in the industry. You pop on the tape, and the tape goes, we've all seen it, ball goes through Buckner's legs, the, you know, Ray Knight scores, Bill Webb, who did an unbelievable job, cuts from the, the Red Sox dugout to the Mets dugout to the stands, back to the Mets, back to, you know, the, the Red Sox, finally ending like a minute and 20 later with a fan holding an NBC sign that says, Now Boston Chokes. Throughout this whole time, this person who's going for the interview says nothing, okay? Then after about a minute of ten of all these shots, he says, and only the way he can say it, he says, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, you've just seen a million of them. Okay, now Bob Wolf has the chance to say, I'm going to hire this guy, I'm going to critique him. What would, what would you say from a professional standpoint if someone had done that going for a job? <laughs> well, I think the, the broadcaster has an obligation. So I speak on the air, I've always tried to speak, as if I'm speaking to my family members. The family members, just like myself, we can make mistakes or errors and so forth. I've noted throughout the years that nobody has ever written me a letter saying, Bob, I listened to you for three or four hours today, and you didn't make any mistakes. But if you say something which rubs people the wrong way or make an error, the switchboard lights up, the mail comes in, and right away you're being roasted by somebody for speaking out as you did. I think that an error is an error. My, I was very fortunate. My two sons were excellent ball players. One was drafted. His son was drafted. And when I go to ball games, I'm very careful what I say before and after the game because errors, mistakes are part of the game. 
But to live with an error because you hear it over and over again means that you're really destroying the person's life. And I've always felt just nothing but sympathy for Bill Buckner, and the last thing I do would be to rub it in. If you say on the air, it's an error, Buckner really makes it, Buckner has actually been an essentially good player, you're just being fair to a human being. In this, we have a great tendency in the country to, to, to boo and to yell and to shout, but ball players are human, so I try to be as human as I can to them. All right, we'd like to close the interview with something we do only for special, only for special Mar- guests. Mar- so we, patented word association. We like to do just a quick game of, of word association. I'll, I'll throw out a couple of names for you, and then basically you can just give us a quick response as to, to the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Before I do that, let me tell you something. I, I appreciate how well prepared you are in not only your questions, but in, in the background notes you've looked up. Right away, if I'm looking for somebody to work with me, that's the type of person I'm looking for. Okay, what are your questions? Uh, well, give me your address. I'll send you my <laughs> resume tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the first name, Kurt Gowdy. Kurt had a very distinctive voice, nice style, very well prepared, and did a variety of sports. He was an excellent top-flight sportscaster and a good friend. Vin Scully. Vin Scully has the most melodic voice of all the sportscasters. Uh, he, he, he was like listening to him, was listening to a, a fine musician. He, he uses the voice, and he's very proud of it. He likes to work alone because he likes the rhythm of how he does the games, and he's one of the few who's allowed to work alone. Joe Graziola. Joe Graziola is the wittiest broadcaster that I've ever worked with. He, he could, be, could have been a top-flight comedian, he was in many ways for NBC doing different shows and just a delightful man to work with. He, he was my partner on NBC, and I couldn't have asked for a, a greater treat than to work with men like Joe. I, I'm a great admirer. Mel Allen. Mel Allen had a tremendous baseball voice. He was a, a, an excellent describer. He loved to reminisce about the old days and the great players. And Mel unfortunately never quite realized how good he was because every year he kept saying, do you think they'll still hire me back for the World Series? Do you still, they still love me? Do they still want me? He, he, he always afraid that the axe would fall on him. And so when the Yankees let him go after 25 years, it was like a crushing blow to him. In fact, so much so that when I was doing uh, some cable shows, I hired him myself to do some play-by-play of a, a college game because I thought it would be great to put him back in the spotlight again. Marv Albert. Marv Albert is the most exciting of the broad- basketball broadcasters that I know. He has a clipped way of speaking. He emphasizes words that very few people use. He just is he his own inimitable style, and I think he has a very exciting style. Uh, I worked with Marv very closely for many years. In fact, one of the best games that I did at, at uh, Madison Square Garden is a game against the Knicks against the Celtics. They came from 25 points back to win the game. The Knicks did, and Marv couldn't finish the game, so he saw me getting ready to do a post-game TV show and rushed down his, his producer and say, you do the, do the overtime, Bob. Marv is to get back to do an NBC show, so we, we shared a great game together.
Okay, Jane Wolf. Jane Wolf? Mm-hmm. My wife? Yes. Jane Jane Wolf is more than more than a wife. She's she's my partner in everything that I do. I, I, I always am sure of a good review from Jane because the worst I can do on a show with Jane, she'll say it's good, which means that's not very good. <laughs> Going up to great. She's an encourager. Above all, she's a terrific parent. We have uh, our three children, all married, nine grandchildren, three great-grandchildren. Without Jane, I wouldn't be doing games, nor would I have the fun doing it because she shares everything with me. And finally, the last name in word association, uh, Bob Wolf. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? <laughs> How lucky Bob is to have one to live a long life, to have a family that I adore, and to get all the breaks I've gotten in my life. I, I have no complaints. I've been, God has been very good to me. I, I, everything has come true that I wanted to do, and, and, and I'm very grateful for that. We here on Long Island are grateful because we do get to see him quite often on News right. 12 on the MSG Network. Uh, before we go, I, I know I, I was going to, you know, because you know we try to do this spontaneously, right. I, I couldn't think of a way to do it spontaneously because I didn't want dead air if, if Bob didn't have his ukulele. He plays okay. his ukulele. Bob has a wonderful voice. I asked him in our pre-call if, if his ukulele was handy. He said no, but he could get a, a tape of him singing, take me out to the ball game, and I think that's a perfect way to close Go because... Ahead. Nothing brings well, you know, joy to us more than that song, and on top of it, Bob Wolf doing it. So if you could play that tape to end the interview, we'd love it, Bob. Okay, well, if you can survive that, I would appreciate it. But <laughs> this tape, I usually use my... When I was up in Cooperstown, when I was inducted in the Hall of Fame there, I played the ukulele and sang Take Me Out of the Little game. But in later years, I used... I still played the uke. But I used Eddie Layton, the, the famous organist at the Garden and the Yankees and the rest. And he, he's playing the organ on this one, and I'll play it for you. I'm playing it right now, so I'll play it up. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mr. Wolf. And on top of it, Eddie Layton, on top of that, it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, you know, if we could have had Joan Payson also, we would have had everything covered. Uh, not Joan Payson, Jane, Jane, Jane Jarvis. Excuse Jane me, Jane Jarvis, yes. Okay. Thank you so much, well, Mr. Wolf. It was a pleasure to be with you anytime, and keep up the good work, guys. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you so much, the great Bob Wolf.